Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 199. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, I am happy to be joined by newly minted Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, Mr. Shane McCarthy. Shane, how are you doing? Oh, I'm great. Wonderful intro, Steve. Very excited to be on the pod. Yeah, like you said, I'm, I'm still getting into being a black belt and it, it's still very, very fresh and all, all really new to me. Well, you know, the first thing that I would recommend is now that you have a new black belt, you have to make sure that you put that thing through the wash and the dryer about a hundred times because you don't want people to think it's a new black belt, right? You want to put some beading onto it so it looks like it's old and withered and that you've had it for a while. So yeah, that's the first thing you got to do is just beat up the belt so that it looks like you're a vet. That's a great tip. I, I've been noticing that it's very, very stiff still. <laughs> it keeps coming undone in every single roll. Yeah, I definitely need to weather this thing a little bit, probably leave it outside for a day or two. <laughs> <laughs> that is the weird thing I find about black belts is they are just so ridiculously stiff and rigid. And I guess that maybe that's done because there's some perception that, oh, that means there's better quality. I don't know. But all <laughs> I know is that I have a real hard time finding black belts that I can actually tie properly. Otherwise, it's like a piece of cardboard. They're so big and thick and stiff. Yeah, definitely. Like you want to seek out that super weathered, like almost half Gracie or a Kurt Osiander level of black belt or like Chris Hodder has a really cool black belt where it's like, it's almost white. That's how beat up it is. Yeah. I aspired to do that one day. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was happy to learn that you can actually buy a pre-distressed black belt online, much like how you can buy pre-distressed jeans where they already come all beat up. You can actually do that and you can specify how beat up you want the black belt to be. So do you want it to be a little bit beat up or moderately beat up or really beat up? That is a service out there that someone provides. You need to send me the link to that. That's like a, that's like the raw selvage denim that I've been searching for my entire life. So that's awesome. I will say, I will say, I definitely like. I just competed for the first time this weekend at Connecticut, and I was just like, my belt is going to come untied every single time. And and you said you never competed before, right? So I don't know if you've ever felt this though while training in like a really stressful situation where your hands are just so destroyed from gripping so hard. I couldn't even tie my belt after the second match. I was like, oh my god, just give me like an hour. It feels like eternity tying your belt after you've competed pretty hard. Well, that is one of the benefits of having a really stubborn belt that comes untied all the time is in competition, it can just conveniently come off and you can use that as a rest break. <laughs> yeah. Give me a good 30 seconds. Uh, but it's like, sometimes like you start getting looked by the ref and you're just like, I know, dude, like I swear I'm trying really hard to tie this, but my hands are just not working. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hey, you know, that's actually a great introduction here and a great way to lead into your story. I saw the posts. I saw that you just did your first black belt competition uh, very recently, but why didn't you expand on that? Introduce yourself. Tell us about who you are. Yeah, sure thing. So my name is Shane McCarthy. As you said, I am newly minted black belt in jujitsu under Emily Kwok and Art Kainz. I know you have Emily on all the time, for, you know, really, really awesome uh, recurring guest that you have. And she's my instructor and it's been an honor training underneath her. And, you know, my story really starts out about, dang, I've been training like 12 years now. I really started jujitsu and martial arts in general, just to lose a ton of weight. So I used to be like about 400 pounds before I started. And now I'm walking around about 2.30. So half of my jujitsu was really just me like getting through warmups and trying not to die in side control for the most part of the time because I couldn't really even do a lot of jujitsu because I was just too big to do any of it. So I think about purple belt is when I started really learning how to do jujitsu and like starting to learn how to put things 
things together. And at that time, I was training at this place called Elite BJJ under Chris Bro, which is a, a they were a Salo Hibero affiliate, so we were under that that lineage. And at the time, I was just looking to find a gym that's a little bit closer to where I moved. And I've always had a really great relationship with Emily because one of my best friends, who I started jujitsu with, Kyle Miro, he was at Princeton training with them all the time. And Emily has always been such a great, great person that I got to meet just by visiting and training with that team. And then we really developed that relationship when I would go to compete at the New York Opens or whatever local tournament, her and her team were there. I would lose for sure, maybe win first round, then lose second for sure. And, you know, for no other reason than the fact that she knew that I knew Kyle and I dropped in every once in a while, she would have really long conversations with me about like, oh, why do you think you lost? Like, what do you need to work on? You know, where is your team? What, you know, is there anyone coaching you on this stuff specifically? And I was like, no, you know, at that time I I was kind of just going to doing the classic jujitsu thing where you go to class, you do the crazy warm up, learn the technique, drill it, and then just roll mindlessly for an hour or so. And uh, I felt like that formula and that the way that jujitsu has been set up back when I was training a lot throughout the colored belts is it almost very ineffective to actually get any real skill acquisition. But yeah, I think that'll kind of tie us in later to, you know, the idea of becoming your own coach and, and developing your own ability to teach yourself. But I was looking for more guidance and I was able to do that with Emily. And uh, it was awesome being able to learn underneath her, become a brown belt underneath her and Art, getting an opportunity to coach there, which uh, her and Art both provide such amazing feedback to how to be a great instructor. And eventually like having her kind of just be more of like a mental coach and, you know, helping me eliminate blockers in my own life to prevent me from being successful and achieving the goals I wanted to achieve. And so, yeah, now here I am, I made it black belt under her and art. And yeah, and I think the big focus that we had to really dial in on during the pandemic was, okay, regular jujitsu is done. You, You can't train, you can't figure it out. So what was the next best thing? Well, the next best thing was decking my entire living room out with mats, (laughs) downloading all the instructionals I can get a hand on and forcing my poor wife to drill with me nonstop over and over and over again. And that, and that's kind of how I started learning how to teach myself new moves and new concepts that I wanted to implement into my game. Now, I love this idea for an episode, this topic of being your own coach. And before we get into this, I think it's important to clarify that when we say that everyone should be their own coach to some degree, That doesn't mean that you should renounce your lineage and sever ties with your instructor and just only listen to and train with yourself and set direction exclusively by yourself. In your case, you brought up a great example of how you're under Emily Kwok, but you still take responsibility and ownership for your own learning journey. And that's what we mean when we talk about being your own coach. Oh, gosh. Yeah, definitely. I feel like... uh you know, it's like, it's all a bell curve, right? At the beginning of that bell curve, that's all the dudes that were in like the garage, just watching like Bass Root in YouTube videos, like the, you know, Gracie garage stuff. And you're like, oh, let me try this ankle lock out. And you know, like that is where I think you can really go wrong because you don't have a coach to help guide you in this process. Because that idea of, like you said, of becoming your own coach, there's a lot of asterisks at that, right? I think once you get to a certain level, you can do that, but you always need to seek guidance of those individuals that can help you understand you know, how to actually do whatever move, whatever system of moves you're trying to implement. Because I actually tried doing this at about purple belt level. Me and a good friend of mine, while I was going to school full-time, only had the ability to drill in the morning. And we were going through like Paulo Miao and Joao Miao Barambolo systems. And I'm like, I am not doing this right. Like, you know, we're doing like, like crab hooks, X, you know, X hooks. And we're like, this is not working properly. And the, and I kind of like shied away from instructionals at that time because of the lack of success and direct implementation of it. So that's a really, really good point. In jujitsu, classically, our instruction is generally organized such that we expect the instructor to basically manage everything about our learning experience from the top down. Actually, we had Robert Drysdale on the podcast recently, and he was kind of talking about this and how that's one shift that he has perceived in jujitsu that he doesn't quite agree with, which is that a lot of students right now, they basically put the responsibility for instruction solely on the instructor. At least that was Robert's perspective. And I think there's a lot to be said about 
the student also taking a degree of ownership over their own instruction. And this becomes especially important, like you said, as you start to get to the senior belts, purple and above, there's just less that your instructor can do for you and more that you need to be willing to do yourself. And I know that when people start jujitsu, the structure for many jujitsu gyms is pretty typical. You know, you show up to class, your instructor basically barks out a bunch of orders, you drill a few things, you just sit there and listen to and mindlessly do what the instructor says. And the thing is, we know now that that is not really a great system for helping people retain and apply knowledge. If you just listen to your instructor and you do the three techniques of the day and you drill them and then you just randomly roll afterwards, you're making it very hard for yourself to retain things. There are systems you can use to improve your retention and recall ability, but it requires work on your part. It requires you to jump in and take some degree of control of your own learning experience. And all of this becomes progressively more important as you get further along in your journey. There's a lot of talk right now about the reverse classroom model in jiu-jitsu. We've talked about it before. Lachlan has been talking about it a lot. I've heard Josh Wentworth and Bruce Hoyer talk about it. It's a really good system in which the student self-directs multiple aspects of their own learning journey. Now, that can mean a lot of work both for the student and surprisingly for the instructor, but the results are there. I mean, you definitely will retain and recall information better if you have an active and deliberate practice for doing so. So with all of that said, I'd like to turn this over to you and let's talk about this. Tell me about how you implement this notion of being your own coach or your own instructor. Oh, that's a that's such a great point, Stephen. And I was actually listening to that podcast that you have with Drysdale, and I couldn't agree more with him specifically on that. Of you know the onus being more on the student now to learn. So I think that what's very fundamentally important is coming in as a white belt, you're fresh to the sport, learning the basic moves and the basic positions, and that's where I think you need the most out of your instructor. And I, that's where I do think it is beneficial to listen to them, go through like a fundamental course. I think your school has that set up. Like we at Princeton have two fundamental classes on Monday and Wednesday, and we even have a 30-minute pre-class warm-up where that's where I show a lot of the students, you know, why are we doing break falls? Why are we doing forward rolls? Or I'll break down a position specifically like the closed guard. And, you know, what are your goals in these positions to help give them that broader understanding and that broader knowledge. But at that point, that's where you really don't want to go off on your own. I think at white belt and go down a YouTube rabbit hole or invest in like a, an instructional where it's not like a position that you're ever going to find yourself in. Like don't go by Gary Tonin's like breaking legs and breaking hearts instructional on BJJ fanatics and expect to get a lot out of that as a white belt, right? You're not going to understand a lot of those positions. So I think about white belt two to three stripe, I think you start having the ability to like start picking areas in your game where you're having the most problems. And that's kind of how I do this now at the black belt level where I pick specific instructionals and areas of study that I feel I need to work on my game. Currently, the two biggest holes that I'm working on in my game are my stand-up as well as my guard retention. So what I do for my stand-up is I watch a lot of judo fanatics instructionals. And the reason why I pick those instructionals specifically, and because one, I think they're formatted the best and they, they have a really great theme of course instruction, which I think some instructionals definitely lack of being able to like put a whole system together. And I'll talk more about that a little bit later on which instructionals I think are like the best or the worth the money, I, I believe. And what I do is I go to like, okay, who's the most reputable individual on that instructional site? It's like, obviously you have Travis Stevens, multiple time Olympian, silver medalist Olympian. I'm going to listen to him about what he has to say about creating Kazushi for jujitsu. So I'll go through that whole entire instructional with my training partner, uh, a really good friend of mine, Colin Weimer. He's like kind of my counterpart at Princeton. This is, I don't know if we'll talk about this as well, but during the pandemic, he was the guy who like I drilled all this stuff with. Cause at, at one point my wife was like, can you leave me alone just for a little bit? <laughs> like, like, all right, I don't want to do squid guard with you anymore. It, it's not comfortable. So what happened is uh, Colin and I were both like, yo, are you quarantined? Yes. Is your wife quarantined? Yes. Are you going anywhere? No. Do you want to do jujitsu? And the obvious answer there is yes. So what we would do is we would literally go through an entire instructional and go through each it technique by technique, feel it out, make sure we're getting it right, make sure we're getting the position right. And then once we complete that instructional, that'll become a part of like whatever warm up we decide to do, or that'll be the focus on how I'm implementing that in live training. 
And that'll be my only goal in live training. So once I get through my my instructional and I've repped it out and I've drilled it, that is when I start implementing that as my focus in my live rounds. I think that's one of the biggest pieces that we miss training jujitsu is everyone goes into the live round like maybe they have a goal in mind, maybe they have a position that they want to focus on, but the role will take you elsewhere. The role will take you, who knows, depending on what level uh, skilled opponent that you're working with or partner, I should say, or what size they are. You know, There's a lot of different factors that can get you away from actually building that. And I think a lot of the better schools set up positional sparring now, which I think is perfect for this. But I think, again, you need to take the onus on yourself and you need to set up your own positional sparring. And like, hey, like I have no qualms going up to whoever it may be doing a role. Ask them to like, hey, can we train together? But all I want to focus on for me personally is just Kazushi. I just want to, I want to be able to create a snap down and move and see if you can like out grip me while we're doing that, or you can prevent me from doing that. And if they're cool with that, which 99% of people are that I've ever experienced doing this with, that way you'll get the most out of that six minutes and the most out of your time on the mats. So the kind of backtracking a little bit is like, you must be asking yourself like, oh, how can I do this in an hour and a half class format where maybe there's a warm up in the beginning, there's very specific instruction that may be not related to whatever you're studying or whatever you're focusing on. And then you go into live rounds or go into an open mat afterward. And that is one of the biggest things that we have to focus on, right? Because some of us may not have the the luxury of going over your friend's house in the middle of the day for lunchtime and and drilling a little bit, or maybe in the morning or, or after class, you don't have that time to do that. So what happens is what else are you doing throughout the day, right? How often do we move ourselves away from paying attention to anything really productive and you're like mindlessly scrolling through Instagram? Like, oh, I'm going through Instagram, going through TikTok. Oh, that's a cool post about a random jiu-jitsu person like this. Like you go down rabbit holes on these things and waste so much time when all you can do is throw up your instructional that you're watching and throw up your instructional and get through that a little bit more. A good friend of mine once like asked me, it's like, okay, cool. You want to do jujitsu professionally? I'm like, yeah, sure. I want to be a full-time coach. I want to own a school one day. I consider myself a weird mix of a hobbyist and a professional because I do see it as a, a potential career path and a passion project of mine. But yes, I'm not going to be like a world champion. I don't foresee that in my future, but I should treat it as if this is something that's really important to me and put as much time and energy into it. So he, he told me like, okay, how much time do you spend a day doing jujitsu? And I like that, that question really kind of hit me. I'm like, well, that's a great point. Like I, you know, I do my workouts, like I do strength and conditioning that kind of helps my jujitsu, but that's not exactly jujitsu. I go to class at night and I coach and I teach uh, and I take class as well. And that kind of helps me with my jujitsu, obviously, right? Cause I'm, I'm, taking time learning the technique and being able to show the technique. But what am I doing in between the other random hours of the day, right? Like I have a full-time job for sure, but most full-time jobs have downtime or you can schedule like a 30 minute, you know, chill session, right? In your calendar. And during that time, that's where I start going through and chunking a lot of information through my instructionals and through whatever instructionals I want to watch. And that's how I start kind of getting a good amount of time towards my 10,000 reps of whatever this technique may be. So it's like definitely one of those things where it's like, all right, you love jujitsu. How much time are you really spending doing jujitsu? And if you apply like an entrepreneurship mindset to that, you should be doing more jujitsu. If this is something that you really want to acquire new skills and, and work through. So that's typically how we set it up. And yeah, I hope I answered the question well on that one because I know I trailed off a little bit, but yeah, I think overall that that's generally our process. I love that idea of understanding how much time you truly spend on jujitsu and trying to maximize that time and the maximization of the value of that time too. Something that many people have identified as a problem with the quote unquote traditional way of teaching a jujitsu class is you don't really get to actually do that much jujitsu. You know, in many jujitsu classes to this day, the first quarter or even third of the class might be a warm up that has absolutely nothing to do with jujitsu. I mean, Preach. I can do jumping jacks in my own time, right? I don't need to pay $150 to $200 a month to put on a pair of pajamas and go to a padded room and do jumping jacks of all things, right? Yeah, Steve, definitely. Like that point there, Emily's going to yell at me. I don't care, but I'm punching the air right now in my office because. 
you hit the nail on the head there. Like I personally believe that you're paying however much your tuition is to do as much jiu-jitsu as possible. The running joke that I have is like, all right, guys, we're not going to start out with a run. If you want to run, sign up for a 5K. Like we need to do as much jiu-jitsu as possible in jiu-jitsu, right? So <laughs> we do have a little bit of a warm-up at Princeton and I try to make sure it's all like skill-based for jiu-jitsu, but I'm so anti-warm-up. It's like, a running joke at Princeton. Like, I'm like, <laughs> let's just drill, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not necessarily anti warm up. I think it's good to get some movement going to get the body moving, but I think it's important to create a warm up that also allows you to develop your skills, not just warm the muscles and the ligaments, but to actually help you because. You know, at a lot of places, a jujitsu class, it might be an hour to an hour and a half. That is not a lot of time to really get into the training and study things. So if you're wasting a quarter or more of that on a warm up, you really want to rethink, okay, how can I make this warm up time useful? And there are things you can do, right? There's drills. You can do, you can put, do uh, some constraint based training where the trick is always with anything like this during the warm up. You have to find a way to ensure that the warm up doesn't devolve into a full out roll, which always happens mm-hmm. with people, right? <laughs> Even right up to black belt, that always happens where if you put two people together and say, this is a warm up flow roll, within about 30 seconds, they'll be trying to kill each other. So it comes down to the coach to come up with creative ways to make sure that they stay in warm up mode. Good way to do that is to constrain the position, right? So to say, for example, Yeah, like we're only doing grip fighting or we're only doing guard passing or something to that extent. And that takes away a lot of the dynamic nature of jujitsu and makes it hard for people to just go into mundial mode on on the mats, right? So that is one of my favorite ways to do a warm up. I'll say things like, okay, person on top, your job is to pass the person on bottom's guard. As soon as someone disengages or passes the guard or sweeps or whatever, you switch it up. But that kind of boxes it in such a way that it's less likely to go totally crazy and off the rails. No, I totally agree with that. I even curtail it even more. It's like, we're just drilling this specific position because the idea of the warm up, I personally believe is let's get your body warm. You really only need about 10 minutes to get your body temperature to a certain point to get that blood pumping throughout your whole body and loosening up your joints and getting your body ready for that position. Like what I say to like, maybe, you know, invert through into very complicated positions. No, but I always love for warming up a good flow passing drill. And I think like the guys from 10 planet, like they have their own system of like, it's a whole, much like their uh, nomenclature for their names or their moves. They have like names of warmups and it's like a whole flow chain of those specific moves. Cause yeah, I'm anti-flow roll. They don't exist in any world. And the more flowy I see the role, the more it's just like just really loose and bad jujitsu where it's like your body's not even tensed in the right position. And I think you're actually repping out really bad. Like you're repping bad habits while doing the flow roll. I'm very anti-flow roll. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I love the idea of the flow roll, but I just acknowledge the practical realities of it. It, it is very hard to get a consistent flow roll. And even if you have a partner who is able and willing to flow roll with you, what is a flow roll really, right? I mean, I I think that it merits a little bit more definition because people might have definitions of what flow means that can vary from each other. Does it mean no submissions? Does it mean no strength? Does it mean no speed? Does it mean all of the combinations of the above? What percentage resistance are you going to give? How do you even measure that, right? So uh, I think that if you get more specific with your students about what you want them to do, it's easier to get the result out of them that you're looking for. We had Rob gray on the podcast before talking about the constraints led approach and this is an example of that where sometimes the best way to to specifically target areas of learning is to put constraints around things so that students are forced to work on things and achieve the result that you as the coach wanted them to achieve and this is actually one of the best ways that a regular person can improve the quality of their training is to impose that constraints led approach on themselves there's a very good chance that your coach has never heard of this approach they don't know what it is and they have no interest in applying it, but you don't need them to because you can do that yourself. You can decide, okay, today I've identified that my butterfly guard is a weakness, so I'm going to put constraints around my warm-up or my game or my sparring so that I'm only working on that area or I'm doing things that will benefit that area. And that kind of conscious planning and prep is a big part of how you can be your own coach more effectively. No, I totally agree with that. I think, you know, going back to the coach aspect of it, I believe they, the coach should be the resource overall. Like they, like they should be able to help you 
whatever position it is, whatever questions you have for a specific position, if they don't know it, they should maybe take the time to learn it or point you in the right direction of an individual that will know it and be like, hey, maybe reach out to them and get a private lesson. That I think is an invaluable uh, resource that we have within jujitsu community because I think the running you know, the running joke is like, you can't go shake Michael Jordan's hand, but you can go meet like any top grappler in the world and be able to have a conversation with them, take a picture with them. And if you have the money, be able to get a private lesson with them. And I think most high level individuals price themselves pretty adequately, especially if you're looking to get a really good understanding of whatever position it is. Cause like, that's my go-to, that's my go-to when I don't like I'm going through an instructional, but I feel like I'm not getting it or I'm not able to hit the live role, like in a live role or in a live situation. Like I'll ask Emily, like, hey, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about that? And she's like, I don't know. You know, like, all right, cool. So it's like, I'll go maybe go to uh, Juni, Junio Casio uh, for a lot of his uh, reverse K stuff or like his K guard, I think is one of the best I've ever seen in his understanding of leg locks. Like, all right, we'll go get a private with Juni or maybe we'll hit up Keith Rikorian because I want to get better at his 50-50 position. Those are like my go-to when I'm really trying to figure out how to make something work and maybe my instructor doesn't have the answer to that. And one of the, like the two most profound private lessons I've ever taken that have really changed my understanding of jujitsu. One was with Paul Schreiner at Marcelo Garcia Academy. I was really having such a hard time dealing with deep half. And I hate deep half with a, with a passion. I hate half guard with a passion, but I also hate deep half even more because being in the ultra heavyweight division and the super heavyweight division, when I've competed, a lot of those dudes really loved deep half. And I kept losing to this one guy every match. He would put me in deep half and we'd spend all the time in there and I'd do everything to get out. But I feel like every escape that I had wound up leading me to a to a sweep and then I was down on points. So I went to Paul, I asked him and he was able to help me out and provide me all the intricate aspects of that position and how to shut it down, how to crush it and what to do late stages with that. So viewing it not just as like, oh, well, don't go in that position. Like, okay, cool. That's easier said than done. Can you give me some tools on how to do that? Reaching out to a professional, I think is the best way to do that. And then the second that I've learned the most about, I think is with uh, Nick Salas and Daniel Myra over at Movement Art Jiu-Jitsu. They're Mikey Musumeshi's two black belts. And they by far have changed my approach to learn Jiu-Jitsu and to like drilling Jiu-Jitsu and how to learn new things. Like we did uh, Baron Bolo Private because they're known as like the Bolo Bros. And when they showed me like how to bear and bolo properly and like the body positioning, which was their biggest focus is like, what are you doing with your body? Where is the tension in your hands and your legs and your spine? And I was like, oh my God, I've been bear and boloing this entire time so incorrectly. And I'm like, this is why my neck hurts all the time. This is why my lower back hurts all the time. It's because I was doing it as a movement as opposed to treating it as a position and understanding like where the checkpoints were with my entire body. And they apply that to every single position. They apply that to, it doesn't matter whether you're passing, it doesn't matter whether you're playing guard. They apply those principles that I think Mikey Musumeshi always talks about in all of his instructionals and into any aspect of jujitsu. And if you use those guiding principles and apply it to whatever you're trying to learn, that I think is the best way to truly become your own coach. Because that way it doesn't matter if you know the move or don't know the move, you can apply guiding principles to any position and then understand, oh, now I know why this works. Now I know why it doesn't work. And then from there, you can communicate with your drilling partner. All right, give me this reaction or make your weight heavy in this leg and not and not heavy in this leg or switch up which grips you're using. Using. You're able to workshop and learn so much more in, in that drilling time than you if you would just mindlessly drilling through the movement with your partner who's not giving you any feedback. Yeah, 100%. You know, it's a, as they say, it takes a village uh, to build a jujitsu athlete. And I think you've touched on that a lot. If you stick to your own coach all the time and they're the only person you collect ideas from, you're just really stunting your game. I mean, that's just the reality. There is no one person who knows everything there is about jujitsu. It is such a complicated, massive, ever evolving sport. So even if your coach is the best grappler in the world or the best coach in the world, there's a very good chance that you're going to come to them at some point with a problem and they're not going to be the best person to help you with it. And that's really one of the demarcation lines between a good and a bad coach. A good coach will do what you've described, where they will encourage you and in some cases even help connect you to people who can really answer those questions. A bad coach will say, 
you know, here they'll either try to come up with an answer that's insufficient and or they will pretend or they will tell you that you simply can't train anywhere else. Right. Mm-hmm. The common problem we have in jujitsu where a lot of coaches attempt to forbid cross training of their students. Those to me are red flags that you don't have a great coach. And I think that it behooves anyone, whether you be a competitor or a gym owner or a hobbyist, It behooves everyone to find other sources of information that you can ask questions to and get help with, much like you described. That can come down to purchasing instructionals or listening to podcasts or YouTube channels, or ultimately, like you said, you can just pay to get access to people and and work with them directly. Um, Alex Samoas, the CEO of the company Technique, they're a, a company that makes performance coaching software, and they're particularly used in the Brazilian jiu-jitsu space. We use them on our premium service to do our narrative feedback reviews. And something that he told to me one time is, jiu-jitsu is the only sport where you can meet your heroes. And that's true. Right. I mean, if you wanted to meet, I don't know, Andre Agassi, good luck. Right. Mm -hmm. Not going to happen. Whereas if you want to meet pretty much anyone in jujitsu that you're remotely interested in, they're very accessible and easy to find and relatively affordable to hire in the grand scheme of things. Right. I mean, people in jujitsu complain sometimes about how expensive a private can be or a seminar. Try hiring a lawyer if you think that those seminars are expensive or those privates are expensive, right? <laughs> there's there's no comparison. The the rates for expertise in jujitsu are very reasonable. So you can spend a few hundred bucks to buy access to one of the best in the sport and have them directly focused on solving your problems. That is a luxury that you simply will not find in a lot of other sports around the world. And that's one of the beautiful things about jujitsu is that you can do that. So if you are in any way interested in taking ownership of your own coaching journey, which you should be, then that's one of the best tools at your disposal is pay for the time of the people who know more than us. Oh, definitely. You know, you brought up another good point in your piece there about the, not even just instructionals, but like using extra material, like feedback, right? Having individuals like, I'm blanking on his name right now, and I refer to him all the time. Oh, man. John Thomas. Yes. All right. I was like, John Cooper? No, that's not a thing. John Thomas. Like, you guys have John Thomas on the podcast quite often. I know he's a part of the your premium membership with his instructional. Like, he, I think, is one of the best resources on YouTube. Like, you don't even need to do the movements. You just listen to his perspective. And listening in general will give you a good approach to be able to try something new or, or change your perspective of how you view a position or view a pass that I think help students like immediately 10x after listening to it. I refer a lot of my like white belts and blue belts to go, go listen to John. Like he's like the best free resource out there. And like you said, podcasts, right? I probably never don't listen to podcasts. I have li- like refer to your podcast all the time, especially when there's a very interesting instructor or or individual on that's covering a very awesome topic because that I think as well counts towards those 10,000 hours of you getting good at jujitsu because you're just immersing yourself and thinking about it, right? We don't always need jujitsu to be a very physical activity. And I think sometimes it's viewed as that, right? As someone who like, I lost a ton of weight doing jujitsu, I treated jujitsu as this workout that I was doing every single time I went there and I had to get the most out of it. I had to take no rounds off. I got to push as hard as I can because I'm trying to achieve this fitness goal. When I started looking at jujitsu as more of a time for skill acquisition, it really really helped my development and my learning and my education of it because I wasn't looking for the hardest role or trying as hard as I can every single sparring round. I started looking at, okay, I want to implement this during this sparring round. I'm going to do that and I'm going to funnel everything back. So like, for example, guard retention is the number one focus I have right now because if you have poor guard retention, you don't have a guard, you can't play on bottom. So it doesn't matter how much time you spent learning, let's say, you went through all of Mikey's Delahiva instructionals, Mikey Musumeshi's Delahiva instructionals. There's like five of them, right? It's like, I think it's a hundred hours of jujitsu. I've gone through that. I've watched all that. I've drilled all that. But if you can't get to Delahiva or you can't retain your guard because it gets passed immediately, it's all moot. It doesn't matter that you know all this stuff because you can't implement it. So I've been in my live rounds. I ask everyone, hey, can we just do guard passing, guard retention? If I sweep you, we reset. If you 
you pass me, we reset. And everyone is open to that. And that allows me to get my guard retention. And then I funnel to whatever guard I want. And then from there, play from that guard and start looking within whatever specific position I'm in, what's helping me retain the guard, what's helping me off balance, and what's happening to me when I'm losing a frame or a hook, whatever it may be. And then I go back with Colin and I workshop that and I drill that or my poor wife, like I said, uh, <laughs> you know, I got pull her like, like, you know, she, she, She's like eight months pregnant now and, or yeah, eight months pregnant. And I'll, I'll be like on my back, like, can you try to remove my frame on your hip from Delahiva? And she's like, Shane, stop it. I, <laughs> I'm tired. I don't even want to be in a squat position, but like, I think that's more important than it would be to, like you said, just, just treating it as if it's a workout and treating it as, as if it's something that you're really having to push hard for. Yeah. It's really important to always focus in your roles and your positions while training. Yeah, I love this idea of thinking of jujitsu not as a combat sport and measuring your success based on rolling time, but thinking of it more like a skill that you're trying to acquire. And really any effort put towards that skill acquisition should count, you know, as you mentioned. This is actually one of the reasons I love doing this podcast and why I know a lot of people like listening to it. Most jujitsu content either requires you to be in the gym because you're directly there with an instructor in the middle of a class, or you are expected to pop open your computer and sit there in front of your computer watching hours of someone run through hundreds of variations of a technique that you're never going to remember, right? The reason I love audio is because audio can fill those other gaps in your life where you could be learning about jujitsu, but you just aren't because all of the other products expect you to have have your eyes involved. And the thing I like about audio, I mean, it's hard to really get into the nitty gritty of specific techniques because I can't just easily show you and say, put your hand here, put your foot here. But in terms of ideas and concepts and strategy and learning tools, I can absolutely talk about that in audio. In fact, in a lot of ways, audio is arguably a better vehicle for learning than video for that kind of stuff. So I know a lot of people come to BJJ Mental Models because it's really the only instructional that you can listen to when you're commuting to work or when you're doing the dishes, right? Because it doesn't require your eyes. And that's one of the things I love about that particular medium. So I always encourage people if they're looking to improve to think of, are there any other ways that I can, I can bring this practice into my life beyond just the obvious, like showing up to the mats? Because you're right. If you're a hobbyist, you're probably only getting two hours maybe of training time a week. But if you start listening to podcasts, even if you're just part of a discussion group where you're actively mentally staying engaged in the sport, it can make a massive difference for your learning. Oh yeah. Like I wish there were more really great podcast for that specifically. <laughs> you know, I think let's put it this way. I believe most of like my aha or my light bulb moments in jujitsu, which I think make jujitsu the most fun, usually won't come from it happening live or me being physically doing something. It's having a conversation with my coach like Emily and picking her brain on on feedback and talking more about like mindset and being thoughtful uh, while you're approaching your jujitsu. I've gotten so many more like aha moments from that specifically than I would from, you know, watching instructionals. And I, most of those instructionals, I go like 1.5 X speed or 2 X speed, especially if it's like John Danaher. And I'm like, I'm about to fall asleep. All right, we got to go 2 X speed. <laughs> I got to drink an energy drink while watching this. Because like you said, like it does require your being very visual as opposed to being able to walk around and stay engaged with whatever you're doing. But you know, we all have houses to clean and maybe pets to take care of and, and children to look after. But you can always have a podcast on in the background. And I think most most podcasts, the typical format, it's like they interview a world champion or an, an active competitor. Maybe they have a compelling story, but I feel like the story repeats itself every single time. It's like, oh, well, I wake up and I train and then I sleep a little bit, then I train and then I go back and I train again and then I compete. You know, when I compete, my mindset is this. And like, oh, I can cool. I can get something out of that mindset. You talk more about that. But we're so entrenched with like the competition story and, uh, you know, competition worship because, you know, those are the, the best in the sport. But I think that I wish there were more resources like this or like John Thomas or even Andrew Wiltsey, right, are, are really great individuals within our sport that can talk about mindset and approach and, and have it be more of a conversation. Because I think those 
conversational pieces, learning almost through a story, through their story, you tend to take something more away from that and you can apply it directly to your jujitsu and you don't need to do like any skill acquisition with that. It's just immediately like, oh, I, I changed my mindset on how, how this works. Or like, you know, I think Emily talks about this a lot where it's like competition mindset. I think that's like one of the most talked about pieces on any sort of jujitsu media. It's like, how do you approach mindset? Or I'm dealing with my first competition. Like, how should I, you know, how should I warm up? Or like, you know, I can't, I can't shake these jitters. I'm so scared. I'm terrified. I'm never able to, you know, do the jujitsu I do in the gym in, in competition. It's like, I think verbally communicating that as opposed to visually seeing it is way more beneficial than, you know, getting any sort of reps on the mat or training harder. Like, like we said. Yeah. I've, I've said this before that, I think that the benefits of visual instruction in jujitsu are overstated a lot of the time. And my thinking here is because when people want to teach jujitsu, the first and most obvious thing to do is to teach it visually, right? To show someone a thing and say, just copy me. And I think that number one, that's kind of a cop out on the coach's part because then they don't really need to explain in detail why they're doing what they're doing. But it's also kind of a problem for the students because then they're kind of just turning their brain off and just trying to copy and mimic what their instructor is doing. And that's not always the most efficient way to learn. Now, early on in your jujitsu journey, if you're a brand new white belt, it might help to just get some reps under your belt. Even if you don't truly understand exactly what you're doing, just to get the muscle motion going, then it can help. But at some point, you really need to sit down and explain to people why you want them to do what they're doing and ultimately to encourage them to think about these things themselves and organize these ideas in their own head mentally. And I think that a lot of the time, coaches just lean on visual as a crutch for bad coaching. And that's one of my main criticisms with the majority of jujitsu instructionals out there. There. They are just giant video libraries of three-minute clips of instructors banging off hundreds of very specific scenarios that may never, ever occur in a live role in your entire jiu-jitsu career. I mean, I, this, this is quite common, right? If you buy an instructional, there might be 60 different variations of a technique on some of those instructionals, and many of those variations you may never actually see in your entire jiu-jitsu career. And that doesn't even get into how hard it is to retain info just by trying to memorize it. So I really love the idea of coaches digging more into the why behind things happen and less about the the what, you know, where your foot goes, where your hand goes. I think if people are equipped with better understanding of what they're doing, it's much easier for them to figure out on the ground what they need to do in any given moment versus trying to just rote memorize every conceivable technique. Yeah, definitely. I, like, I really appreciate that you brought up that fact of, of the visual aspect of it and just the c- copying because there's one big important piece there. It's feel, right? I can't tell you how many times I've been to seminars or like, you know, really big seminars with really big names and they'll show the technique, walk around and just be like, oh, no, do this, do that. It's all copycatting. It's all field-based. And I don't think you're able to own it as an individual if you can't make it yours. And I think one of the most important pieces to the studying of instructionals is being able to feel it. That I really, really hammer that home as a coach myself is I like to go around and do it to the entire room as much as I can, whatever I'm showing, because maybe your maybe your quads aren't engaged, maybe your your glutes aren't engaged, maybe something is not turned on in your body that's preventing you from one, doing the move correctly in a live scenario, but two, puts your body in poor position. And I think personally, that's where a lot of injuries happen is because we're doing the position completely wrong. I think a really good guard to talk about when it comes to that position specifically is Delahiva. I see a lot of individuals when they play Delahiva, their knee is so far out wide, like their hips are fully extended. And I've known so many people who focus so much on putting the foot inside of the hip that they get their knee popped. Like I've, I've known a couple people who have done this and the reason being is they don't have their hip flexor engaged and their knee right along the knee line and they're putting tension inward as opposed to out. And I think you can kind of only grasp that understanding if you feel it. And I think that's where I really always refer to an individual, like ask your coach about this if you're watching an instructional or go to someone who like pay for that, again, pay for that private lesson and feel them do it. Like that, again, referring back to my my private lessons with Nick and Danny, 
that feel piece is is so important because I felt what their body was doing in in crab ride. I felt what their body was doing in bear and bolo, and I was able to mimic that and turn that on when when I was doing the the movement live. And then that's where the the audio feedback of like, oh, do do this with your body, or do you know, put your foot there, put your foot here. I think that's where that can come into play. So listening to it when it comes to, I think, greater concepts of like, for example, let's say frames on your partner or your individual, you can learn that audially, but audially, is that the word? I don't even know. Uh, But you can also do that via feel. And I think that's kind of where sometimes you do lose that instructional, like that's right. I think that is why people are turned off from instructionals at times is because like, oh, I'm watching all this, but I can't hit it live. I don't know if I'm doing it properly. That's, I think, where we go back to our coaches and we ask them those questions and being okay with asking your coach those questions. If they don't know the answer for it, refer you to the right individual or like, I think a good coach helps you figure it out together. Like I even have like white belts or blue belts who, or even purple belts who are going through instructionals and they're like, oh, I was looking to do this. And they maybe did it to me in a live role or they were just asking it about me. And if I know the answer, or if I can help them with that, oh, awesome, cool. Because we can apply those guiding principles I touched on earlier to that position of like, oh, what what's happening? But if it's something completely new to me, I'm like, oh, cool, let's figure it out together. Pull up the video. Video. And then you can always utilize all forms of, you know, all tools, learning tools at your disposal in one session to, again, get the most out of your time doing jujitsu. That that feel part is so important and, and learning while listening, huge, very huge. Yeah. Another thing that I want to really just piggyback on top of here, you talked about the game changing importance of getting feedback. And I would say that For most people out there, if you're looking for a resource that can help supercharge your jujitsu and you're trying to figure out, okay, should I buy an instructional? Should I pay for some privates? Those things can all help. But one of the probably quickest hacks you can do to really supercharge your jujitsu right out of the gate is record yourself rolling. It doesn't even have to be a competitive match. It doesn't have to be, you know, in a tournament. It can just be you rolling in the gym with your friends, but record it and get someone more experienced than you to break down that footage in detail. That is probably one of the single best ways to really supercharge your game. Because like you mentioned, there is tremendous power in getting direct feedback. I mean, yeah, it's great if you can listen to John Danaher talk about systems for five hours, but that's a (laughs) one-way conversation, right? You can't at any point raise your hand and say, but what if this, or how does this apply to my game here, or am I doing it right? It's a completely one-way dialogue where Whereas if you record yourself sparring and you send it to someone and they break it down, that is direct customized feedback for you. And even if it's not John Danaher on the other end doing the instructional, even if it's just some local hobbyist who just happens to be more experienced than you, you will probably get way more value out of something like that than anything that is one way. So I always encourage people to come up with creative ways to get feedback. And sometimes the recording of footage can actually be better than asking for feedback live. I mean, I I don't know about you, but I have found that as a coach, it's really hard to give good feedback live because it's very hard to give good feedback succinctly. Sometimes I might have a 30-second explanation for why I want you to do something. But if this is in the middle of a live role, I can't really just stop the role and give a little lecture for 30 seconds and then tell you to go again, right? That just isn't generally how it's done. And you won't have a productive role if it's constantly start stopping like that. So what I find valuable is I get people to record the footage and then I can break it down as much as I want. Someone might send me a 60 second clip, but I might have 10 minutes of feedback on that. And the responses that I've gotten from that approach is that it is way more valuable than just buying an instructional or just having an instructor bark instructions at you while you're trying to roll. That kind of recording and later playback, basically self-tape study, is an awesome way that anyone can do to get better at jujitsu really quick. Oh, definitely. That th- Those feedback loops are so important. Like Again, me and a bunch of individuals competed this weekend. We're going to go back and we're going to watch that footage. We have a whole 6 a.m. morning crew that they always record the roles. And even there, I'll look at the roles and be like, oh, like, this is why you didn't get this position or you know, this is why you missed a sweep. Like Those feedback loops are so important. And, and having a good instructor that's willing to do that is very key. Because like you said, like in a live role, it's very... <laughs> some individuals 
individuals don't like this, where you stop them and you're like, hey, uh, like, okay, the reason why you got stuck there or this happened is because of this. And they're like, yeah, 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 whatever. Let's, let's get back to the role. Or some individuals, while they're being coached, like it completely like takes them out of the moment, takes them out of their element. Like, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, where if, I, if I'm trying to give live feedback as I'm watching two students roll, how often do they just like stop and turn and stare at you like a deer in headlights? <laughs> no, no, don't look at me, right? It even happens in competition. Yeah, you get so much more out of recording your own roles and recording your own footage. You're like, you may have a perception of how you're doing this move or how you're doing this, you know, passing sequence. And then you see yourself like, oh my God, that was not what I thought was happening whatsoever. So you start building that self-awareness. And I think building upon that self-awareness and building upon, like building on that feedback loop, I think once you start having those conversations, even with your training partners or your coaches, I think that starts building an environment of constantly giving everyone feedback because there's a double-edged sword to that, right? Like how many times have we seen the meme where it's like, you know, the blue belt stopped me midway through my submission to coach me through it, right? We, we don't want that happening. That's so cringe. And that that's constant, right? It's like you, that's like a classic cliche in, in jujitsu. It's like, oh yeah, yeah. You listen, you got me with that tap, but here's how you could have, you know, done the rear naked choke a little bit better, right? That in itself is very cringy. But I think if you start having very constructive feedback loops, and, and I think that starts with drilling with your your partners and drilling with your teammates, because I don't know if this has ever happened to you. Have you ever been taught a move and then you, you partner up with someone who you may not be that familiar with, or maybe they may be your best friend in the gym, and you both just do the move over and over again and nothing is said. You're just staring at each other as you yep. go do your two reps and two reps. like. How awkward is that really, right? Like one, if you don't know the individual, that's super awkward. So like, you know, introduce yourself, have a conversation like, hey, I'm, I'm Shane. Nice to meet you. Like build up that bond and build up that teammate relationship that you have. But then from there, it's like, start talking to your training partners while you're drilling. Like, hey, does this feel good to you? Does, does my weight feel in the right position? What if you, you know, what if you grabbed my sleeve here? Or what if like you tried, you know, making your leg stronger or making your arms stronger or framing on this part of my body or as opposed to the other part of my body? I think you start getting more constructive drilling sessions with that specifically, even in the classic structure of a, a jujitsu class, than you would if you were just to like stare at each other and just do your two reps, switch, do their two reps, because that's your feedback loop live. And that can even help build on if you are recording your roles and you are recording your drilling and even asking your coach. I think that starts building up a really good environment and culture where you're able to have those conversations while drilling or maybe after a role, take the time, like don't go right into the next role, like ask them to like workshop that with you. I think you get more out of that as opposed to like, all right, quick, let me tie this belt. Let me run to my my next role. I got to get these hard rounds in. I, again, because it's it should be skill acquisition over how hard can you train. I think we do that really well at Princeton with, with myself, Colin, and a lot of the other students that we have. Like That's our main focus. It's not like, how many hard rounds can I get? It's like, am I doing this right? Am I doing this like correctly? Can I ask Emily about this? Can I ask any of our other instructors about this? Am I doing my best as a coach to give that feedback? So I think that that's a huge point. I really am glad you brought that up. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because a lot of the gyms that are still out there frown on that, right? They frown on talking during roles. The idea is you should be silent and focusing on the practice. But look, mindless repetitive drilling is not a good way to learn. We should know that by now. Some dialogue with your training partner where they give you feedback on what's working and what isn't is really key to knowing if you're drilling properly. I mean, if you are not talking to your partner, you could wind up doing a hundred reps and doing it terribly and your partner never tells you. So that's right. just wasted time, right? The communication with your partner is so key. And I don't understand why people discourage talking during practice. No, no, definitely. Like, you know, especially for higher belts, like purple belt, brown belt, black belt, like, listen, I've seen the mounted collar choke how many times, right? Like, I'm not going to get anything out of that if I just mindlessly rep out two, switch, let the person do their two, switch, do the other two. We both are coughing at the same time because of the choke is too tight. Like we're not getting anything out of that. And I think that is why I feel a lot of individuals maybe experience a plateau at that purple belt or that brown belt stage or even at blue belt where you're like, I've seen this position already. I'm not learning anything new. Yeah, that's cool. Like, okay, maybe this is your 20th time seeing the classic hip bump sweep from closed guard. But like, ask your partner, can you put your like 
make your knees wider or maybe go active toes, maybe go toes down, maybe sit your weight further back. Maybe when I sit my weight further back and I start coming up, can you come forward? See what that feels like. There's so many different options with every single position that you could take the time to learn while drilling as opposed to just mindlessly drilling the move over and over and over again. And I think like, I don't know if you remember this, but if you remember like Team Lloyd Irvin when they had the like the drill session where they do 10,000 reps and they're just like drilling the knee cut over and over and over and over and over again, or like the leg drag pass, like back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It's like, yeah, sure, you definitely want your 10,000 reps, but are they quality reps or are you just doing 10,000 reps for the sake of 10,000 reps? Because I've seen that, like I saw that information like, oh man, I need to be drilling more. I need to rep more time. Like I just need to get more reps and more reps. And it's like, okay, I'm supposed to only do two. Let me do three or four, but I'm just doing three or four of the same technique that I don't even know if it's correct because I didn't ask my partner for feedback. Yeah, I definitely don't subscribe to any of those gyms that like, you know, don't talk while rolling or don't talk while drilling. Don't talk, you know, like don't give each other feet. Like it's ask the coach or ask the, you know, sensei or professor, you know, like I don't, I don't think that's good because at the end of the day, what are people paying for? People are paying for your ability to help them get better at jujitsu and they're not going to get better at jujitsu if they don't have those feedback loops. And once you start learning what your own individual way of, of curating your feedback loops and what you need to know to make something work, that is going to grow your jujitsu like infinity X. It's going to help you so much. And I think that will help you break your plateaus. That'll help you, you know, level up faster. Cause like, I think this is my biggest goal as a coach is like, I don't want it to take you 12 years to get as good at jujitsu as I, I did. You know, I want to cut that time in half or even more. My wife, again, like her blue belt jujitsu is like my later purple belt jujitsu. Cause I, I joined Princeton as like a four stripe purple belt. And I feel like I didn't really start learning how to teach myself until about end of purple belt, brown belt. So what I focused on is like, let me make her jujitsu as good as, as I can. And I think her blue belt jujitsu is better than me at like four stripe purple. And I'm like that, that's an accomplishment for me as a coach because I can cut her time in half because I helped her learn how to use those feedback loops and help her. Like, this is how you work with a drilling partner. And this is how you can get more out of your drilling time. And this is the questions you should want to ask. And maybe during a live roll, don't focus on just rolling through the whole positions, like focus on one specific thing that you want to accomplish and then funnel everything back to that. Like, like I said, you know, earlier guard retention is the focus. So if I am trying to do a, like a live roll and I sweep the individual right away and I'm, I'm in mount or, you know, uh, side control or taking the back, I'm taking myself away from the goal. Like very oftentimes if that happens, I'll mount and then do the classic like head hug, let them, you know, just basic arm trap sweep me back over to close guard. And I start that cycle all over again. So as a higher belt, that's how I play with white belts or play with blue belts and get those reps in there that are quality and where I'm able to focus on whatever principle it is that I'm learning to get better at while training. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Well, man, this was a great chat before we tie this guy up here, any closing thoughts or things you wanted to cover that we didn't bring up yet today? No, I think we definitely covered everything. I definitely, uh, you know, really, again, recommend building those feedback loops, looking, you know, looking at instructionals, looking at finding training partners who are open to helping you with those feedback loops. Make sure you're working with a coach that is open to all of this. Like you shouldn't be working with a coach, in my personal opinion, you know, that's like, don't look at instructionals or don't look at YouTube, just train harder, just do harder. Uh, you want to find an, a quality individual that's going to help guide you and give you the freedom to be able to do this and be able to, you know, be open to you being your own coach. I think in closing, like I definitely want to say, because I did touch on instructionals a lot, there's a lot of bad instructionals out there. <laughs> there's a lot of instructionals that may look really good, but don't have quality content or that aren't formatted in a way for you to kind of really understand a position. So I think like, I'd always refer to people like, if you're looking to get better at stand up. Travis Stevens, Jimmy Pedro, Colton Brown are great for judo, which is what I'm focusing on. I would definitely say like my top three for, for grappling, like jiu-jitsu instructionals are Mikey Musumeshi, anything, Nick and Danny, so the Bolo Bros, anything that they do. And then not John Danaher, I definitely say Gordon because he's like a faster, more, like <laughs> he won't put you to sleep. It's a faster, more clear path to the same system. So definitely check those out. Like don't go buy a random one that you saw that's like, oh, this covers a cool position because, you know, it may not work out the best. And, and I think just in closing, like definitely always try to find really great training partners and, and try and build that culture. If like you're the person in the gym who's listening to this and you feel like that, like you don't have that ability to have that feedback with training partners or with coaches, 
find people within your gym who are open to this and you'll be shocked at how many people are because they just want to get better. Build that culture yourself and you'll be you know, be the change you want to see. You'll start seeing that impact the rest of the gym and see everyone start growing together. And uh, I think that's really important. So yeah, Steve, that's uh, that's kind of all I have. And I'm just super appreciative of being on the pod and, and you know, taking up an hour of your time. <laughs> well, I appreciate it too, man. And hey, if people want to follow you or get in touch and ask a question, how do they go about doing that? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Hit me up at Waka Flocka Shane on Instagram. It's W-A-K-A-F-L-A-K-A Shane. You could also check us out. Like I have a, I'm a bit of a podcaster myself. <laughs> Insert the meme. If you want to just hear me and my good friend Colin talk nonsense and cover random things, hit us up at Tinfoil Matt Pod. We drop episodes every week, except for we've been pretty lazy, which I want you to yell at me about. We've been traveling a lot and haven't been able to record. So um, yeah, I know. I know. Consistency is key and we're definitely missing that key. But no, then again, you know, shout out to Emily Kwok, our kinds, all my instructors at Princeton BJJ. And if you want to send me a direct message, listen, I'm bored most of my time anyway, and I'm constantly addicted to my phone. So uh, if I can help anybody out, just hit me up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that well like i said in jujitsu one of the only sports where you can meet your heroes so i always encourage people out there if you want to chat with someone in the jujitsu community never be afraid to just reach out the worst that'll happen is they won't see your message maybe they'll ignore it but you'll probably be surprised at how often people actually reply and legitimately try to help you out so yeah awesome if anyone wants to get in touch with shane as i always do i will put all of those links in the show notes so just pop that open in your podcast player go there and pretty easy to find them. And beyond that, of course, if anyone wants to check out our stuff, go to bjjmentalmodels.com. That's where you'll find every episode of the podcast we've ever done. It's where you can sign up for our awesome free newsletter. Perhaps most importantly, it's where you can get your free trial to BJJ Mental Models Premium. If you're not a premium subscriber, I highly recommend it because beyond making sure that I have enough food, (laughs) the benefit of being on premium is that it allows you to get access to our premium content library like we were talking about earlier over 50 plus hours of awesome conversations on there about mindset, mechanics, strategy, tactics. Really happy with what we put together. It features guest instructors like John Thomas, Margot Ciccarelli, Andrew Wiltsey, Emily Kwok, Dominica Oblanite. list goes on. There's a lot of them and we're always building on that. And hey, we talked about the importance of video feedback. If you don't know how to do that or if you need someone to review that feedback for you, then that's another reason to sign up for premium. We've got an amazing review service there where if you upload your video stuff to us, we'll break it down in technical detail. And like I said, probably going to be more valuable to you than actually going out and buying an an instructional. And hey, Emily Kwok is actually one of the people on our review team who helps field those uh, those videos. So you might even get her to yell at you about everything that you're doing wrong. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, I do recommend people check it out if they haven't already. BJJMentalModels.com is the place to go to do that. Really appreciate it. So thanks in advance. And thanks to you, Shane. This was an awesome chat. Happy that we got to connect. Congrats on the black belt. And man, I'm looking forward to following you and seeing what you do next. Thank you so much, dude. I appreciate you. You too, man. And of course, to everyone out there, also appreciate you as well. Thanks so much for the time and attention. Always look forward to these chats and I'll talk to you next week. Take care.